From Balls Bluff to Petersburg, few regiments experienced more fighting or suffered as much as the 20th Massachusetts Volunteer Infantry. Join Richard F. Miller, regimental historian, for story of this unique unit when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Are you a busy event planner, an auction chair, or development coordinator? Well, AuctionHelp.com is designed for you. Find out why hundreds of nonprofit organizations just like yours have chosen AuctionHelp.com to take the stress out of the benefit auction process. Hi, I'm Russ Dalnack, professional auctioneer, and I'm also someone who can help you coordinate your next auction. That's right. We have a special staff of auction management experts to give you that auctioneer to, to get the right person behind the microphone that'll encourage your guests to be generous. We can also meet with your auction committee throughout the whole planning process. We're going to give you helpful hints that could add as much as 25% to next year's totals. We're going to train and monitor your auction volunteers the night of the event. We're going to help you run your auction, including the registration, the data entry, the filing, the cashiering, the recording, where to get those valuable items, how to develop your audience, and all those things. Log on, auctionhelp.com. We're here to help with your next Next auction. Hey, got a marketing department? Outsource it. Electronic Theater, a full-service multimedia ad agency, will animate your business. Still stuck with paper? Go digital. Engage your prospective clients with dynamic media, including voice, animation, video, music, and even virtual tours. Your interactive presentation illustrates who you are and what you do. Whether it's projected onto screens, handed out on CD with auto web link, or streaming from your website, Multimedia will grab your client's attention and keep it there. Electronic Theater makes it simple. We are knowledgeable, experienced, friendly professionals, and surprisingly affordable. So get your message out to the world. Electronic Theater, spotlighting your business. Check out our services and low CD replication pricing at electronictheater.com or call us at 760-436-8449. Interested in advertising on any of our shows? Please click the Advertise link on the homepage or send an email to ads at worldtalkradio.com or you can click on the Sponsor This Show link on any of the show pages. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich with Richard F. Miller, author of Harvard's Civil War, A History of the 20th Massachusetts Regiment. Richard, when we started talking about the 20th Massachusetts, we got as far as the recruitment of this remarkable unit, officered largely by gentlemen, uh, many with Harvard connections, but made up 50% by immigrants, many of the other rank-and-file uh, uh, unemployed mariners from Nantucket, Cape Cod, Martha's Vineyard. How does this regiment uh, gel when it first forms? Well, at first, reasonably well, and the reason for that... Uh, was the fortuitous selection of the first colonel, a man by the name of William Raymond Lee, who essentially had his foot in both camps, uh, that of the eastern Massachusetts Brahmin. Uh, he came from a very distinguished uh, old-line family, was a member of the Society of Cincinnatus. Uh, but at the same time, he had also been 
the superintendent of the Boston and Providence Railroad, which is one of the first railroads in Massachusetts, essentially connecting Providence with Boston and then route south. And as part of his training as an engineer, uh, he had actually uh, supervised work gangs consisting largely of immigrants. So in short, he knew how to handle men. And one of the things he understood about handling the men of the 20th was that at least the perception of fairness in rank and promotion, in granting seniority and so forth, was paramount. And all factions within the regiment, uh, the young Brahmins from Harvard, uh, the German Achtungfertzeigers, the Irish, the rural boys, the Nantucketers, uh, all looked to Lee as being their guarantor that things would be uh, meted out, both punishment and reward, fairly. And their expectations were not disappointed. So a lot depended on his leadership. In Correct. addition to the, the class conflict, you've also got the political conflict over the issue of slavery, not just as an abstract issue, but uh, a very concrete issue when you start encountering fugitive slaves. What That's correct, there? and it happened to have coincided with the Battle of Balls Bluff, which is where, uh, from a command standpoint, the regiment's luck ran out. Uh, simply put, uh, William Raymond Lee, his colonel and his enforcer, uh, Paul Revere, uh, who was major and grandson of the Midnight Rider, were both taken prisoner. And the unit was now being run by its lieutenant colonel, uh, Francis Winthrop Palfrey, who was an extremely bright and later a distinguished historian, the son of a distinguished historian, uh, but to put it in modern parlance, uh, a snob, a man who uh, heavily insisted on social class and ethnic distinctions. And the net result was that factions, which had been prepared to sort of dissolve their differences in trust of Colonel Lee, the differences now came to the forefront, and the lobbying was ferocious. And at the time when several fugitive slaves presented themselves at the regiment's camp in Poolsville, uh, they were arrested by one of Paul Free's minions, a Nantucketer uh, by the name of Macy. Uh, Macy had them returned to their owner. An individual, probably someone from the German regiments, although the signature line in the state archives in Massachusetts has been cut out, so we'll never know who sent the letter, but anonymously sent a letter to John Andrew, governor of Massachusetts, who was an abolitionist. And this created a furor uh, that reached right to the Joint Committee for the Conduct of the War, uh, Senator Sh uh, uh, Sumner and Wilson, and was actually national in scope and probably did as much as anything to lead to the eventual arrest and disgrace of uh, Charles Pomeroy Stone, who had been in command during the Battle of Balls Bluff. Now, the, uh, I know our listeners will be familiar with that battle uh, on, on the banks of the Potomac in October 1861, but I will recommend to everyone listening that you get a copy of Harvard's Civil War and you will find there a, a really superior reconstruction of this battle from the Union perspective and uh, a sense of what's going on minute by minute with the companies and of the, the 
20th Massachusetts, but not simply a uh, who shot who sort of detail festival as is also popular in Civil War writing because these details of who shot who and who ordered what go beyond the tactical, and they have these enormous political implications for the regiment, as, as you just explained. When uh, Colonel Lee and Major Revere are captured, this is going to change the dynamic internally of the regiment uh, for months to come. Yes, that's correct. And as I have discovered both from personal experience, or I should say personal observation, uh, as well as my research, command is everything. Now, that, that's interesting because I, there's a sort of renaissance going on these days in Civil War regimental histories. It's a small enough subject. But we've seen some new ones in the last few years that have taken new approaches. Uh, Mark Dunkelman wrote on a New York regiment in which he really looked closely at the individual soldier's experience. Yes, a fine book, by the way. A, a fine book. Uh, he was a guest on here a few months ago. and. Mm -hmm. Uh, I very much enjoyed his book, and I thought it's it's a model of its kind. Mm -hmm. uh, Leslie Gordon, I believe, is working on a, a Connecticut regimental history that promises to be different from the traditional version, and we'll have to wait and see uh, when that comes out, how, how it differs. Your book has a very clear thesis uh, in the three words you just gave us, uh, command is everything. The focus really is on the officers, on, on who is commanding the different uh, companies, who are the field officers, because, well, what, well, because obviously you believe command is everything. This is, to you, the most significant element in the history of this regiment. Is that fair to say? Yes, that's fair to say. And ultimately what evolves, and I think this is probably true, uh, a, a universal uh, for armies everywhere, uh, is that the commanders are probably not terribly well-liked by some in the regiment. Uh, they might even be despised as martinets by others. The question is, do they have the moral authority to lead uh, when the chips are down? And it was on that basis, and perhaps that basis alone, that the officers of the Harvard Regiment, whatever their personal failings, and I make a point of discussing what I believe to be their personal failings, because many of these men were not terribly likable in today's terms. However, they were able to summon the moral authority to lead, and as a result, they were able to inspire or coerce, usually some combination, uh, the fighting abilities of the men they led. Now, this certainly would have been true of Colonel Lee at Ball's Bluff, the, but he's captured there, and then Lieutenant Colonel Paul Frey takes command. Yes. And it, I happen to have come across his book on Antietam and Fredericksburg earlier this year and read that. And uh, Also a fine book. A fine book, highly recommended. Yes. Uh, uh, those looking for a good primary source on the campaign uh, will, will enjoy that. It, it helped me, I, so I had a feeling I knew this fellow a little bit when I came across him in your book. Mm -hmm. Now, he leads the unit into the uh, uh, the campaign that follows the Peninsula campaign. Correct. Uh, how does the regiment fare down there? Well, this was, uh, in many respects, 
the regiment under his leadership at the Battle of Glendale proves my point. Palfrey is disliked by his men. And there are many officers, including many of his fellow Brahmins, who don't cotton very well to him. However, at the Battle of Glendale, uh, he is able to lead his regiment uh, into the thickest of the thick, uh, remain standing, and then have a positively orderly retreat, firing uh, by line of battle as they retreat, which meant that essentially he was able to reduce casualties. And because of his willingness to stand up, essentially, and expose himself, he was followed. Because in moments of stress, it wasn't important that he may have been a terribly, in our terms, prejudiced man, or one who was very reserved and not easily approached, a cold man. None of it mattered. It all fell away when the shooting started. And all that counted was Palfrey's ability to stand up, essentially, and expose himself uh, not just to the same risks, but to greater risks, and that he did. Now, I wonder, do you suppose, though, that there's a limit to that? I'm thinking uh, in, in the Western theater character, I've, many of our listeners would have come across William Nelson, mm-hmm. uh, division commander in the Army of the Ohio, uh, a brave man by, by all accounts, but so disliked by his men and officers that one of his subordinates finally murders him in a hotel lobby. And is not convicted because everybody's basically glad the guy is dead. Right. Um, bravery couldn't save William Nelson. Uh, is there a limit? Don't you? Th- do you think to which at, at which point, no matter how brave one can be, if you're too much of a jerk, uh, you can't lead men effectively anymore? I I, I think clearly uh, there has to be a limit since. Uh, in life, you're, you're always on safe ground by assuming there's a limit to everything. <laughs> true. That's true. It's not, not impossible to imagine an officer uh, whose cruelty, uh, whose sadism, uh, whose uh, lack of integrity is so extreme that regardless of personal bravery. But the truth of the matter is that uh, those issues, uh, cruelty and sadism and lack of integrity, uh, were not, perhaps with one exception, uh, were not uh, the issue uh, with men of the Harvard Regiment, the officers at least of the Harvard Regiment. Uh, n- nobody would have doubted, uh, no matter how much you despise Palfrey, that if you left $100 in his tent, that it would still be there in a week. Uh, none of those kinds of things were issues. And so there's more a political or personality difference, but not not a deep distrust based on character. That's correct. Where, where the off, Harvard officers drew the line was in social and class distinctions. And to that extent, uh, they were not well-liked. But those kinds of distinctions don't necessarily overrule one's fitness for command uh, when the shooting starts, because when the shooting starts, those kinds of things tend to fall away. Now, in... In a Civil War regiment, you've got your 10 companies, 10 captains, 10 first lieutenants, 10 second lieutenants. In the Harvard regiment, some of the captains are, as you say, the the Brahmins, the Boston elite. Some, especially in the German companies, are themselves immigrants, German speakers. Did the captains mess together, or did they stay within their own companies for that? No, clearly 
clearly there's there's no question, and this is something that simply arises from having read hundreds of letters by many, many men enlisted and uh, officer in the regiment, uh, where the social distinctions were invariably enforced uh, were in things like messes uh, and socialization. Uh, they simply would not uh, pal around with one another on leaves, and when I mean one another, I mean across class or ethnic lines. It would be inconceivable uh, early in the war that uh, Henry Abbott, one of the Brahmin officers, would have uh, written an introduction to his father on behalf of the ethnic officers. His father was a very prominent judge and politician here in Massachusetts. Uh, that, however, interestingly began to change after Gettysburg. And you notice an opinion. Opinions begin to change. Uh, Henry Abbott's uh, willingness to draw lines around uh, birth and nativity uh, begins to blur quite a bit. Uh, one of the Brahmin officers uh, boasts that now they're having, uh, including in their messes, the newer officers who were promoted from NCOs, uh, typically those from ethnic backgrounds. And you get the sense that the war is beginning to erode their sense of class barrier and social distinction. And the experiences this unit endures, it's not surprising to see how that might happen. Uh, at Antietam, for example, the 20th Massachusetts is in Dana's Brigade, yes. which is in Sedgwick's division. And uh, this, again, is jarring our listeners' memories. The, if they know the, the Battle of Antietam, Sedgwick's division is the one that marches in a compact mass into an ambush in the West Woods with the 20th Massachusetts uh, on, on the very flank of that, or that, that formation. Um, it's amazing anyone got away from that at all. Well, what happened there? Well, essentially, uh, the 20th was, in fact, um, on the receiving end of the Confederate flank attack. Um, the lines had begun to bow somewhat. They were compact. They were unable to return fire. Um, as best as I have been able to tease out and compare the various narratives. The bulk of the regiment under William Raymond Lee's leadership, by then he had returned from uh, prison in Richmond, uh, was able to withdraw on a fairly orderly basis. There were several companies uh, that were not. But it's interesting you would raise Antietam because it segues into your earlier point about eroding class distinctions. There was one famous line in one of Wendell Holmes, Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr., future Supreme Court Justice, uh, who states that when the f Southerners attacked on the flank, uh, one of the men in his company, an Irishman who he distrusted, uh, wound up giving an order, withdraw, withdraw, we're under attack, or words to that effect. And Holmes at first doubted him. But then when he looked to his left, he saw that, in fact, the Irishman had it right. So Holmes began to organize his unit for withdrawal before himself being shot. And one of the pieces of significance from that is that it's that kind of equality under fire uh, that begins to erode uh, social and class distinctions in the regiment. That eventually uh, you simply don't care who's giving you the warning or watching your back. Ethnicity and class become irrelevant. And, and the 20th Massachusetts... And certainly endured enough of this kind of 
punishment at Antietam. Uh, they're, they're shot down in the Westwood at Fredericksburg. They are one of the regiments that goes across on boats into the city and then the next day up the hill. Uh, at Chancellorsville, they attack in Fredericksburg again. At Gettysburg, uh, they're in the midst of Pickett's Charge. If this were a screenplay, you'd say, enough already. Why are this, reg this regiment in the worst spot in every battle? Uh, it's almost too much to believe. But it is true, and with the music in the background, we will take another short break and come back with Richard F. Miller, author of Harvard's Civil War, and talk more about the remarkable history of the 20th Massachusetts. That's what we'll do on Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs> 